Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, this morning, as, as Larry mentioned, we get to con- con- uh, continue our best summer ever series by taking a look at what we hope in. And in order to do that, we are looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. And as we're getting started, let me just say a quick word of warning to you. This is not probably going to be like a normal candidate sermon or candidate message that you would typically hear. It's going to be a lot heavier than that. I'm not going to talk to you necessarily about the vision that I have for North Bible Church or anything like that. I do have one, but maybe we can save that for another time. Instead, we're going to stay faithful to what the text is this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And what we're going to see here as we read through that in a few minutes is how we have hope in the midst of suffering. The Apostle Paul, who has written this letter to the church at ancient Corinth, uses words like affliction and suffering and distress and troubles and peril and death in this, in this passage that we're going to read here this morning. And so it's heavy. It's heavy. And we're going to feel that here this morning. But at the same time, I feel like this is uh, uh, something that's necessary for us this morning. Because every single one of us, no matter who we are, will experience suffering or pain at some point in our lives. If you live long enough, it'll happen to you. And for many of us, you've been through distinct suffering in your life that has lasted over periods of time and it has marked you and impacted you from the time you felt it on forward. Some of you have been through extended periods and you're in the midst of it right now. The reality is we live in a broken world. Ever since Genesis 3, we live in a world that is broken, a world that in the end is not the way that God intended it to, to be, and so as a result, we experience brokenness and difficulty and suffering and evil and pain all over us in every relationship, in every place that we are in. And sometimes that suffering is more distinct, sometimes it's more profound than others. Now this morning, we all have a different way that we approach suffering as well. For many of us, we've experienced something like this or we're experiencing it now and so we know how painful it can be and so we've done everything that we can to try to avoid it. We've tried to insulate ourselves with all kinds of other things that we hope will avoid, help us to avoid any kind of pain or suffering in our lives. For others, maybe you haven't experienced it, but you've seen it in other people that you know and you love, and, it, and from a distance it just looks so painful and so aggravating that you try to avoid it in any way that you can as well. But even in the midst of that, and even when we do that, many of us have found that suffering still finds us in a way and to a degree that we never thought was possible. I remember the first time I was blindsided by a depth of suffering that I wasn't ready for. I was only seven years old at the time. And when I was seven, I had a cousin who was 16 years old who died in a car accident. And I distinctly remember about two or three days after his death, we were all gathered in my aunt and uncle's house. There were aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, parents, everybody was there, as many people as we could get in this house. And we were there mourning the loss of our cousin. And I I don't remember everything about that day, but I remember a few things very distinctly, things that have left an impact on me still 30 30 years plus later. I remember sitting in a room with 10 of my other cousins, and he was the oldest cousin out of all of us, and so we, we were all several few years younger than him. We were all basically children, but we, the, the reality is we all lacked the capacity to understand fully what was going on. We knew that our cousin had died, and we were sad about that, and we knew that a lot of the adults were weeping, and they were crying, and they were really upset, but for the most part, most of us didn't have a category for that kind of grief. And I remember sitting in that room, kind of looking at my other cousins, And um, something profound happened in that place. And it was 
something that we heard coming from another part of the house. It was grief that was being expressed that we couldn't see, but we could hear. And, if, and you know this if you've ever been a part of this kind of an experience or situation. It's the kind of suffering that can only be expressed from a mother who has lost her child. It was a deep, guttural weeping that I still remember to this day was something that I had never heard before and something that was completely awful and moving and disturbing. And it was so deep, I remember it seemed like it shook the foundations and the walls of the house as that weeping just went down that corridor, that hallway. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, that is awful. And there is nothing that I or anyone else can do to stop it. My experience as a pastor has given me more experiences like this throughout my life as well. Since that time, my calling as a pastor has given me all kinds of experiences with families who are dealing with suffering big losses like this. A few that come to mind, I officiated funerals for a young girl who died of leukemia, a friend of ours, of Katie, Katie and myself from high school, who died in her 20s, and another cousin of mine who died as a teenager several years ago as a result of a dirt bike accident. And I was thinking about this this past week, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the reality is I think I've done more funerals for people under the age of 30 than I have for people over the age of 60, which is really remarkable. And in every situation when I'm meeting with a family and trying to talk with them, you know, death itself is tough. It's difficult. But death, for somebody who is so young, is cruel and confusing in a way that's unexplainable. And I remember sitting with parents who are burying their child, looking at me as a pastor to have all the answers, realizing in that moment that I was completely overwhelmed and had no easy answers for them. And so what do you do in that situation? Well, I won't tell you necessarily what I said in those situations because I don't actually remember. Um, and I would say probably they weren't that profound anyway. Instead, what I want to do is explain for you this morning what God has to say from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What does God have to say about hope that we have in suffering? When we face situations like this, and in undoubtedly all kinds of other situations that we will face in life, whether they are big situations, whether it's prolonged suffering or momentary suffering and afflictions that we feel, where is God in all of it, and where does our hope rest? And in doing this, I'm going to explain it more kind of like a sports commentator. If you ever watch uh, sports on TV and you hear the commentator, he's describing what's going on on the field. He's not a professional. He's not an expert necessarily, but he's just describing what he sees. And I'm not an expert on suffering, but I hope to be able to commentate or at least display the one who has suffered on our behalf, who is familiar with our suffering and who has overcome it, and that's Jesus Christ. And as we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, we're going to see that. Because I think this morning, and this is important for all of us to hear, because I know I'm talking to someone here this morning who has experienced a loss like what I've talked about of a family member or a close friend. And it was so profound in your life that you carry that grief with you every day, and it's still with you even now. And it'll probably be with you for the rest of your life. I know that there's probably someone in here who has heard a recent cancer diagnosis of a friend or family member or maybe even in your own body. Or maybe someone who has lost a job that you loved recently. Or someone who's been looking for a job 
for a long time and you can't seem to find one. Maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning who feels a deep sense of despair because you've gotten to this point in your life and you always thought things would be different than they are right now. Maybe someone who's alone and you feel tragically alone and you don't feel like anybody sees you. Or maybe somebody who's addicted this morning to substances or to pornography or to materialism and you feel a deep sense of, of shame and that causes distress in your life. I want you to know that for all of us, you are, not, you are not alone because all of us experience the brokenness of this world in some way or another, and we all need the hope that is brought to us through a passage like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Before we get into it, I want to frame this for you. We're going to look at this passage through three questions. These are the biggest three questions when it comes to suffering that probably all of us have when it comes to facing pain and difficulty in our lives. And they're kind of classified in different categories, but the questions of, uh, in some form or fashion are questions that we all ask. The first one is this. It's more of a philosophical question. It's a question about why is this happening? Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there evil in this world? It's classically known as the problem of evil. Why is there evil in this world? Sometimes we ask that when we're going through it. Sometimes we ask it when we see other people go through it. It's more of a philosophical question. The second question is the theological question. Where is God? You realize that even atheists ask this question when they're going through deep times of suffering. I've heard accounts from atheists who say that I pray to a God that I've always said that I don't believe in just in case he was there to hear me. Everybody, I think, asks at some point, where is God in the midst of this? And then finally, the third question is a, is a question that's more personal. What is the purpose of my suffering? Why am I going through what I'm going through right now? And is there any hope for getting out of this? How long is it going to last? Is it okay for me to feel the emotions that I'm feeling? All of those kinds of things. So philosophical, theological, and personal. We're going to hit that as we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 1 because I think this is important to realize is that everyone experienced suffering and will at some point in their lives. But how you answer those questions determines how you will respond when suffering comes in your life. Because you also know this to be true if you've been through these periods of time where you have struggled with grief and pain that you do not remain the same person on the other end of it. You will either change for the better or for the worse through your experience of suffering. Some people become more prideful, more proud. Others become more humbled. Some people become more jaded. Others become more gracious. Some people are more compassionate on the other end while others become a little bit more bitter. Some follow Jesus more closely while others seem to drift further away because of the suffering. The question is, how do we have a posture in which we respond in the way that God has prepared for us and that God shows us is good? So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to begin reading uh, in verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And it says this. You see it on the screen or if you have Bibles or devices to read off of, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. 
Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer so that many who give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The Apostle Paul writes this, of course, to the Corinthians. This is his second letter to the Corinthians, at least that we have in the Bible. It's probably actually his third letter that he's written to this church. This is the opening chapter, obviously. Paul spent a couple verses just introducing the book to us, but then in the third verse that we just started reading here, he gets into what is really the form of a corporate prayer. And he's praying for the church at Corinth, he's praying for himself, he's praying for his companions, and some remarkable things actually come to the surface out of this prayer. We actually get a real sense of Paul's pastoral heart and his missional heart as well. Because you may know this about Paul's relationship with the Corinthians at this point in his ministry, but it is complicated to say the least. The Corinthians in many ways, as we read, if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see Paul call out all kinds of immorality that's going on in the church. There's division that's going on in the church, and there's all kinds of false teaching that they're subscribing to. But as a result of the division that's rising up, there are these different factions that are fighting and in conflict with one another. And some of these significant, powerful factions are the ones who are coming against Paul and opposing his authority. And so they're basically saying Paul is not an apostle. He doesn't speak for God. And so why should we pay attention to anything he says? Now this colors a lot of what 2 Corinthians is all about. It's in the background of all of this. And the reason it's important to know the context, especially for this, what we've just read here in chapter 1, is that Paul is working to defend his authority as an apostle. Not for his own sake, not for his own reputation, but for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul realizes if they're going to discredit the messenger, they will quickly then begin to discredit the message and the ministry among them. And this is Paul's heart, that they would know the gospel, and they would not leave it behind. And so he's defending his authority, but he's defending his authority as one who is preaching the pure gospel of Jesus, and for that purpose. And when you know that context, I've kind of looked at this and thought about it myself at times, because as a pastor, like, what would you do in this situation? And Paul doesn't kind of move in with the old spiritual power play, right? He doesn't come in and say, the God who has created everything, the sovereign God, the God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one who has made me an apostle. So you better listen to what I have to say because he's powerful and he's got my back. No, what Paul says is remarkable. He introduces, you see how he introduces God there? He says, the God of all comfort and the Father of compassion, who, by the way, is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ who suffered. Comfort, compassion, and suffering. And why does Paul do this? It's kind of curious, right? Well, he does it because he understands what is going on at the church of Corinth. In fact, many of those who were opposing him were saying things like, if Paul was really an apostle, why would he be suffering the way he is? How many times has he been arrested after all? He's been beaten. Have you heard the guy speak? He's awful. Right? I mean, and they're challenging him based on the fact that he's suffering. 
So Paul says, I come to you in weakness and in suffering. Suffering that's been appointed to me by God. Because the Corinthians are saying is basically, look, if God favored you, and if you were really faithful, Paul, you wouldn't be suffering the things that you're suffering right now. Now look, that theology, that understanding that Paul's opposing in first century Corinth, unfortunately, is still present in many uh, corners of the church today. An unfortunate example of that is what is called, often referred to as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Made popular by all these TV preachers that are on TV, right, that you see all the time. Not every TV preacher is a prosperity gospel preacher, but a lot of them are. Many of them are, maybe. And especially on one channel in particular, which I won't name. (laughs) But there are different degrees of the prosperity gospel, but all of them in general says this. Look, since God loves you, He will give you a measure of success and happiness in this world as long as you are faithful and especially things like money you want, a healthy body that you desire, a great and happy family. This is why it's also referred to as the health and wealth gospel. Because since God loves you, he will give you enduring health and enduring wealth if you are faithful to him. It's it's evidence of the fact that you are favored and that God loves you. Now, I'm not saying that because God gives us things and we enjoy life that God doesn't That's not evidence of God's love. But you can see with a perspective like this, it leaves no room for what happens when suffering enters into our lives. And for that reason and many others, that's why it's so dangerous. But what comes to the surface here is this understanding of suffering in its proper context. You know, in this passage, you may have noticed as we read through it, this is a passage all about the comfort that God brings us. In fact, that word is used 10 times in the passage, in the short passage that we just read. It's used so many times that as you read through it, it's almost, you, you might have caught me slipping. I've, I've read through this passage, I don't know how many times, and even when I still read it out loud, I'm like slowing down to say, okay, comfort plus comfort. It's awkward even the way that it's worded because Paul's inserting that word comfort so much in this passage to make a point. It is all about the God of all comfort. But as you, as you can also see, comfort is joined by words like affliction and suffering and peril and death and difficulty and problems and all the rest. And despair. Paul talks about suffering and comfort more than any other writer in the Bible. And quite often they all look like this, where he joins suffering and affliction with comfort. Many times comfort comes in the midst and through suffering. And I think it's important for us to camp on this. Because as Christians... Rightly so, we focus a lot on the resurrection victory of Jesus, as we should. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote one of the great chapters on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, our faith is in vain. It's meaningless. It's empty. But at the same time, if we jump too quickly to the resurrection victory of Jesus, we have no space and no category for what happens when suffering actually takes place. Author, uh, author and writer Tim Keller has done a great job. He's done a lot of research on this idea of suffering and how each culture throughout history has approached and understood the place of suffering in our lives. And he's done extensive research by reading. I really think he makes some great conclusions on this. He says that throughout history, every culture, including all of the, all, many of the cultures in our world today, have had a place for suffering in their understanding of life. They expect it to happen, and in many cases, they often embrace it. And they value it for what it ultimately brings. Transformation of character, uh, more reliance on some kind of spiritual ideas, a world that is other than the world that we live in. 
and also a sense of community because you realize when you go through suffering, sometimes community is, is, is your safeguards. Community is your place to be. It's your safe haven. He says that's true for every culture throughout history and even many of the other cultures that exist today except for one culture. There's one exception. You know which culture that is? The modern West. The culture we live in. The culture where we draw our worldview from, the culture most of us have grown up in, the culture that conditions how we see the world and in particular how we approach suffering. He says instead the modern West is really the only culture that has historically believed that convenience, security, and luxury are our highest value. And that the things that reinforce our convenience, our comfort, our security are the things that we assign the highest value to. And as you can tell, that leaves no place for suffering. Because suffering is the thing that gets in the way of us enjoying life right now in this world. And so it's seen as something to be avoided, as something to be ignored, and as something to be cast away as an enemy of the man-made goals of comfort in this world. And it's not because we rely on the God of all comfort, it's because we rely on the things that we have created to keep us comfortable. And one of the reasons we do that here in the West is because we have the affluence and the ability to do it. Quite simply, it's a fruit of that. So let's return to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 because the problem with that perspective is that as Tim Keller says, suffering is like the Great Wall of China. No matter how hard you try, you can't get around it. It'll happen to all of us. So we need to see and understand what God has to say about this in the midst of this. And to do that, again, I want to revisit those three questions we addressed earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, again, gives us this proper perspective. So Paul's answer, that first question that we ask is, why does suffering happen? Why does suffering exist in our world? We've hit on this a little bit already, but it exists because there is sin. There is brokenness in our world. But Paul would add another layer to this. He said it also exists because you are following Christ in a world, as a Christian, you are following Christ in a world that is hostile to the gospel and is hostile to what it means to follow Jesus. It's hostile to the kingdom of God. And so as Paul would say, almost everything he lists later on in the list, all the shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and left for dead, all of that is a result of persecution because Paul is simply following what Jesus has told him to do. And Paul says this is another category of suffering that we will experience as Christians. It's not that you necessarily suffer less as Christians. I think if you were to ask Paul, he would say, it'd be a lot easier if I wasn't following Jesus because the suffering wouldn't happen to me. And so he says essentially both that, sin, that suffering happens because we have sinned and suffering happens because we are being redeemed. That the closer and closer you follow Jesus and the more and more that you are, re, uh, that you are formed in, into the character and transformed into the character of God, the more you will be at odds and hostility with the world around you. And it causes suffering. Secondly, going from that question to the next question, which is a theological question, Paul answers, where is God when we suffer? Notice again, and remember this, that Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. That word all is so critically important. He is the transcendent God who is the source of all real comfort in the midst of suffering, real hope that we need when we are really at the end of our rope. And in the midst of it all, he is the transcendent God. But then he joins that phrase with another phrase right after it. He is also the father of compassion. Do you see that? The imminence of God, the transcendence of God, the otherness of God, but also the nearness and the imminence of God. He is close to us in our suffering. 
And not only that, but that word compassion, of course, means to suffer with. So he literally sees our suffering and he suffers with us in the midst of it. He is our Father who shows compassion and who feels compassion in the midst of it. And again, Paul doesn't delve into the deep theological discussion or the deep philosophical discussion. Again, you know that if you've been through times of pain, and I used to make this mistake all the time as a pastor, if you go to somebody who's really experiencing a lot of pain and you start giving them philosophy about why evil exists in our world, and you give them theology about, you know, this is how it all, it comes off as very cold and offensive in some cases. And so we need this third aspect. This is the personal aspect of God's comfort with us. This answers that question of what is the purpose of my suffering? And to see that, I want us to look at the second part of verse 8 on to verse 9. Paul says this, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You could read this as their suffering was so intense that they were experiencing that they were just ready. It, it, it almost would have been better to die. And then he continues in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In some cases, we thought that this was going to be the end. And I'm sure Paul felt that on more than one occasion as he's being imprisoned and as he's being beaten and stoned and left for dead. This is going to be it. But in the midst of all that, in other words, this is the most intense suffering we can imagine. In the midst of all that, here's the purpose of it that Paul says. But all of that, all of that suffering, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You catch that? This is the purpose of our suffering. So that we can be taught not to rely on ourselves, in which there is no true abiding hope, or what we can provide for ourselves in this world, but to rely on the God who is the only one who can raise from the dead. Scott Halfman says this about it. You know, because I think this is important. He distills this down because for so many of us, we are looking for some kind of profound reason in the midst of our suffering. We are, some of us are expecting a payoff from our suffering. We kind of have all this, this karmic approach with, if I'm suffering this much, then God owes me a bunch of blessing later on in life. So if I can just get through this, then that blessing will come at some point. Or I don't know why I'm going through this right now, but God will eventually give me an answer. Look, sometimes those things happen, but sometimes they don't. We aren't promised those things. What we are promised is a God who is good, a God who is sovereign, and a God who loves us. This is why Scott Halfman, I love the way that he puts this, distills it down. He said, look, if we want to know God's goal in suffering, what is the purpose of my suffering? God's goal in suffering, therefore, is to teach us that in life and in death, as in all eternity, he himself is all we ultimately need. This reminds me of what happens in one of the most significant books in the Bible on suffering, the book of Job. I don't know if you've read the book of Job before. Um, I used to avoid the book of Job because a few times I read through it, I just felt like, what is the point of all this? It's 42 chapters long in the middle of the Bible, and for 37 chapters, the first 37 chapters or so, all you basically get is Job's story, and then Job praying, Job crying, complaining, calling out to God, Job's friends coming in, throwing the whole prosperity gospel at him, saying, look, if you were faithful, God wouldn't be doing this to you. And then his wife telling him to die, right? And so you get this for 37 chapters going on. And except for really at the beginning of the first chapter, God doesn't say anything throughout that 37 chapters. But what's interesting is that Job asks all of these questions that we've been talking about, these big three questions. First of all, he asks, why is there evil in this world? 
Secondly, he asks, where are you, God? He cries out to him over and over again. Where are you in the midst of this? I can't hear you. I can't see you. I don't see the purpose of this. It gets to the third question. What is the purpose of my suffering? Why are you doing this to me? And is this ever going to end? And if you know Job's story, he went through the laundry list of all the big capital S suffering that you can experience in life. He was a rich man who lost all of his property and all of his wealth. He was a man who had several children and they all die. And then he lost his health, his own physical health, to such a degree, and he was so miserable that his wife just eventually said to him one day, why don't you just curse God and die? It'd be better for you to die than to be in the condition that you're in right now. And Job cries out to God for 37 chapters. And it's not until chapter 38 that God answers Job. And if you've never read this before, it might shock you in terms of how God responds to this man that he loves. He says this, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. God knows how to make an entrance, right? The whirlwind. There's a whirlwind, and God speaks to him through this, and he says this to Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. I'm thinking to myself as I read this, God, take it easy, man. I mean, give this guy a break. Do you know what he's been through? I know you know what he's been through. Can you just ease into that conversation? But what, what God recognizes about Job is he is hearing the exact thing that he needs to hear. It's actually the loving thing that Job needs to hear. He's not dealing with Job's particular philosophical questions and theological questions as he's been asking for 37 chapters. He gets in front of Job and he says, Job, look at me. I am the sovereign God who is in control. I am sovereign. I've created this. I've laid the foundations of the earth. You need to know that. The second thing you need to know is that my purposes are good. I am a good God. I'm not duplicitous. I do what I say I'm going to do, and I'm not prevented from doing what I say I'm going to do because I am sovereign. Right? There's no such thing as being half sovereign or partially sovereign. You're either sovereign or you're not. God says, I am sovereign, completely sovereign to do what I will. So what I promise I'm going to do, I will do. And then the third thing he says to him is, Job, I love you. And I've been with you through this entire thing. And you see that when God calls Job his servant. There are many people who say, well, the reason why God is upset with Job is because he did what was, he did, you know, he's, he's upset. He's kind of judging Job in this, in this moment. Well, that's not actually true what's going on. God's not upset with Job. He actually affirms what Job has been doing. He condemns the prosperity gospel friends of his. But he says to him, Job, you've remained faithful, and I've been with you, and I love you. And if you think about it, those are the three things that we need to know about the God who is present with us, that he is sovereign and in control, that he is good, and that he is loving. And that's it. That's the baseline of it. That's what we're promised. Other things may come, but at the same time, that is the most important thing that we realize in the midst of our suffering, is that this is the God who is with us. And this is true hope. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says about the fact that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so many times we are deaf to hearing God because all we can focus on is the suffering and the, and, the, and, the, and the things that we're experiencing and the pain and the grief that we're experiencing. Sometimes we're deaf because we're listening to the wrong things in the midst of those situations. But God uses that pain if we will listen to shout hope into our lives. And this is what hope looks like according to a biblical perspective. Hope is not us wishing that something may happen at some point in the future. 
That's how we typically use that word hope in our daily conversations. I hope that something might happen next week. I hope that I might get this job. It's wishful thinking about a preferred reality in the future. But biblical hope is about a confidence in knowing what will happen. And it's based upon the promises and the person of God. Because he is sovereign, he cannot be prevented from doing what he will do in this world. Nothing impedes his purposes. But it's good news because his purposes are good, and because he loves you in Jesus, his purposes are for you. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's what we take from true hope and suffering. That's what it means to really hope in the one who has died on our behalf so that sin and death could be done away with, and the one who will ultimately destroy it in the end so that sin and death will no longer have any rule in this world whatsoever and any presence whatsoever in this world. It's the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. Let's pray. And as we do, as you have your eyes closed this morning, what I want you to think about in response is what are those things in life that you have hedged your bets with? In other words, if Jesus fails me, I've got this as backup. Jesus is plan 1A. I'm a Christian. But plan 1B is fill in the blank. These are all the things I've got in place just in case what Jesus says he is or who Jesus says he is is not actually true. And I ask that question because I want to read for you this quote from A.W. Tozer. It's a convicting quote. It's a challenging one, but I think it's one that we need to really understand, and I want to challenge you as you listen to it to be praying to God that he would reveal this to you. Pseudo-faith always, pseudo-faith, fake faith, always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even as we are before you this morning, by your Spirit, you would be displaying our hearts for us. We know that whether there are times of suffering or times of joy, things that we go through in this world both reveal our hearts and they form our hearts. And so, Spirit, we know that you say you search the depths of each person's heart and you make it known to us. And so we ask that you would make it known to us even as we approach you this morning. The Spirit, you would be teaching us and showing us, is there any way in us where we have tried to hedge our spiritual bets, where we are less than completely dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Spirit? I pray that you would show us this morning what it means to be the God of all comfort in our lives. I know there are people this morning who are suffering and struggling through many of the things that we may have named this morning, and this really strikes a chord for them because it's real and they need hope. Lord, would you give them true hope this morning? And would you be present in their lives and in their hearts in a way that shouts through the darkness, shouts through the doubts, shouts through the, the, the lies of other voices that they're listening to with your truth and with your, your overwhelming and abiding comfort? And Lord, may they know you as the Father of compassion. The Father who loves his child and who suffers with them and sees their suffering in the midst of it all. 
And we pray this by the one who has gone ahead and suffered for us in our place so that he might redeem it, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.